Non-philosophy is for all generic humans. One cannot remain complacent with the reworking of philosophical terminology as first terms. Yo! What is going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith, and once again, that is not Troy Polidori. He is in the middle of one of the most stressful situations that human beings uh, can go through, a cross-country move. So... He is unavailable for a chat this week as he is, his life is just thrown into disarray at the moment. So, uh, if you guys have a minute, you know, feel free to give him some love on Twitter, shoot him an email, send him some words of encouragement because he's talked about this many times. He's got that OCD ness about him where he's very ordered and very structured and moving is literally a complete clusterfuck. So, anyway, so he is not going to be joining us this week, but I'm very, very, very excited to be inviting on and welcoming Taylor Adkins, who is one of the uh, leading, the I guess you could say, the world's foremost translators of a very enigmatic and interesting philosophical figure named Francois Laruelle. Uh, Taylor also translates some of the philosophical writings of Gilbert Simondon. Uh, I believe he's done some work on Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari as well, as well as another figure in a sort of similar lineage named Raymond, uh, Raymond Rouillet. And Taylor is going to come and talk with us about Francois Laruelle's uh, own project, which is a very sort of particular kind of project. It's called Non-Philosophy, and more recently it's been termed Non-Standard Philosophy by Laruelle himself. And so we're going to be talking about that in a couple of minutes. But first, I did want to just say that uh, as a reminder, the 100th episode is coming up in a few weeks now, and we are fielding questions from all of you uh, about pretty much anything, anything from the serious to the semi-serious to the absolutely insane. So you can tweet us at owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can email us owls at dawn podcast at gmail.com. You can hit us on Insta. It's owls underscore at underscore dawn. Um, yeah, and just feel free to lob any questions our way, and Troy will be back at that point, and we will tackle as many of them, if not all of them, as many of them as we can. We'll try to get through all of them, but we'll definitely get through as many of them, if there are too many, as we can. Also, as a reminder, if you find value in what it is that we're producing and you want to get access to bonus content, bonus episodes, if you want to receive the monthly newsletter that's filled with all kinds of extra shitty rantings and sticky recommendations as well as articles that we're reading, things that we're currently reading in literature otherwise. Um, And if you want to be able to recommend episode topics for future episodes, our Democracy Motherfuckers tier, then go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. That's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And uh, as one final quick reminder, the patron-led episode thing is open comment section is open over on Patreon. So if you are already a patron and you want to recommend an episode for us to talk about, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and uh, we have a Democracy Motherfuckers announcement where we are uh, fielding suggestions. So please feel free to recommend them down in the comments there. And if you're not 
a patron yet, but you want to be able to recommend a topic, again, patreon.com slash owls at dawn. All right, so that's pretty much all the homekeeping stuff, so I'm going to shut up now, and then we're going to cut straight to the interview with Taylor. Hope you guys enjoy. Much love. All right, sweet. So we are going to have uh, a fun episode this week. This is going to sound interesting. Taylor, you don't know this, but um, for people listening, I have actually been acquainted with Taylor's work for a very long time, um, since like the heyday of the philosophical blogosphere around, I, I guess I'm thinking somewhere between 2010, 2012, somewhere in there, where I found his blog um, along with his friend's blog that he co-hosts his podcast with. And uh, so I've been familiar with Taylor's work, but only just recently got actually, uh, I guess, verbally acquainted with him and otherwise days ago. acquainted with Yeah, that's right. So um, so it's kind of nice, actually. But um, we have Taylor Adkins on the show, who is a translator of Laruelle and Simon Don and, um, and various other French philosophical thinkers, um, as well as uh, the co-host of Theory Talk, which is an excellent podcast for people out there that enjoy philosophical deep dives. Definitely check out Theory Talk. And then um, he also runs Speculative Heresy Blog. Is it is it still up and running? You know... Um, at the moment, uh, Nick Cernisek and, uh, Ben Woodward, they've, they've moved on to other things. They are very successful in, in their endeavors and they're still, uh, they're still quasi active on, on Twitter. You can see them working through their own stuff. I have actually translated some, some bootleg stuff that, uh, of, of, of Larwell that I could put up on the site. I could keep, uh, running it but at the moment uh speculative heresy and to a certain extent fractal ontology they're they're kind of dormant so i i will say i don't know what it is i i feel like it's 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 maybe it's the era of the podcast more than the blogosphere i haven't been able to write my own um philosophical ruminations as much because i am working so hard on 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 translating there there is a kind of it's it's not just a a, a time issue it's also kind of like your brain a mental space you know, gets, yeah. yeah so so i i i don't i don't want to say fractal ontology is dead i think spec uh, speculative heresy is i won't say dead but it's maybe like latin as a dead language that it's a resource but but perhaps <laughs> right, right. it's it's not it's inactive let's say yeah well i, w- I would uh, for people that are listening i would definitely recommend uh, recommend both of those blogs um they uh there was a time around like circa 2010 to 2013 14 um kind of on the maybe kind of in the wake of the emergence of speculative realism would you say where the blogosphere was a site that was really really active is that was was that the catalyst do you think i mean you know uh fractal ontology got started in 2006 and that's really when and we'll get to this that's really when i start translating and and you could say that yeah that that uh there's a decade of 2005 and i'm sure it's earlier too you can even go back to geocities and um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and my space and all of that. But, uh, but I do think that there was a, a flourishing of blogs and not that blogs are dead. There are still great writers on blogs. And, and a lot of, a lot of times now you see curious cat, which I won't get into because that's not something I'll ever do. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yes, I think that, that around 2005 to 2015, 
there is a flourishing of, of various blogs, especially centered around the things we're interested in, which is uh, philosophy, uh, Marxism, Deleuzeanism, um, all the, you know, you could make them into isms. But I mean, mm -hmm. one of the things I would say just that even if speculative heresy is, which is not a phrase Larwell ever uses, that was actually a phrase that I, I, I'm going to take credit for coining uh, because it is it is uh, meant to encompass uh, triple O, you know, and speculative realism and the the other uh, types of philosophy in its wake. That that I, I was very keen on Larwell's discussion of um, of of heresy. But also, he, he, he at one point talked about his uh, non-philosophy as transcendental realism, but I felt like speculative heresy, it, it kind of hit a chord that, 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 that gathered the three of us, me, Ben, and, uh, and, and Nick. And, and, and even if it's inactive, it's still a resource, because you can go there, and there are many resources to other thinkers like Brazier, like Harmon, like... Kolitsova, these great thinkers, and it also hosts a lot of my bootleg translations of uh, of of Larwell, and even a couple of translations of like Rouillet and Simondon, these early translations. Um, so, cool. but those are bootlegs, and 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 never been like legitimately quote unquote published by uh, the academia. But I think I think they're still good good resources, even if they have their 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 flaws because I haven't uh, rigorously revised them. Cool. Well, I, I mean, I'll say this. So, you know, Francois Laruelle, the figure that we're going to kind of focus on in this episode, he's a pretty um, fringe and maybe even enigmatic figure in Western philosophy, I think. And, uh, and I was introduced to him through the blogosphere, through your blog, as well as a few other blogs. And, um, so I think that this is like a good way to maybe just transition s simply into talking about him because I think there's something interesting kind of formally speaking about how how like he has come to prominence in certain sectors of digital space in the blogosphere for right. example but right. not necessarily in the quote unquote formal academy right um like yes there are people like Ray Brassier who uh, is obviously kind of a well-known academic philosopher who writes on uh, on Laruel, uh, Kolitsova, as you mentioned, uh, John Malarkey, Mallorca, uh, he's changed his name now. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so there are figures in the academy that are writing about him, but there's something almost interesting about him existing in the fringe digital sphere that kind of ties into what non-philosophy is and maybe his role as a heretic, don't you think? You know, it's. It, I like that you put it that way because... Um, in the early aughts, in the early 2000s, whatever you want to call it, the there was a collective around Larwell, and they devised a website that has now been reactivated and now has been taken, uh, has 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 gained new life due to um, one of his followers. It's actually. Katerina Kolotsova's uh, boyfriend, who is a, uh, I, I won't name him here on the podcast, but he's taken over the, the it's, it's a site called OnFee, which in English would be the non-philosophical organization, the international 
non-philosophical organization, something like that, right? And and that's where a lot of his, uh, uh, not just his work, but uh, but Brazier's work, also um, some of the work done by Rocco Gangel, who translated the uh, uh, Introduction to the Philosophy of the Difference book, which precedes one of the books that I translated by Laura Well, and he's my co- he he's my uh, uh, my collaborator, my co-translator of Larwell's magnum opus, Non-Standard Philosophy, which should be coming out sometime next year by Columbia. Onfi um, is back online, and it has a lot of Larwell's work that he didn't publish anywhere else. You know, in the 80s, Larwell actually self-published certain uh, journals. Hmm. Um one was called The Philosophical Decision, the other was called Osiris, and The Philosophical Decision uh, was a lot of work that, that was adjacent to philosophy and non-philosophy, uh, the work that I translated, and but Osiris was a lot of the experimental, uh, quasi-poetic work that he uh, himself wrote on various thinkers from Heidegger to, Laruel, or to Leibniz to... Uh, to Hegel, um, and he found a space for himself uh, that that that, in a certain sense, approximates what the blogosphere could have been in the '80s. Mm. You know, except it was in print. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, 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 yes, I think that there is something uh, that Larwell has has always tapped into the the digital before, even before it's 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 it's. Uh, it's nascence and, and renaissance, uh, you know, mm. and, and so the fact that Onfi is a resource, it, it is a resource for, for readers, especially for readers, and, and some of it's in English, some of it's in, in French, uh, but but it is a resource for, for those who want to look deeper into uh, to Larawell, that Onfi.net is, is not just still up, but it's, it's been reactivated. And how do you spell, uh, how do you spell that, just for people? O N P H I, right? So the so the so the I is international, uh, the O is organization, and the N P H is non philosophy, right? So it's a cool. it's an international organization of 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 non philosophy because I think that, that the thing is you know, um, and this is something that each philosopher has to encounter. Like for Nietzsche, he never wanted Nietzscheans. Right, he told us <laughs> that 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 to follow him, one must lose him. I think for Deleuze mm. too, the way that he practices buggery, the way that he practices the history of philosophy, because as Larwell says, despite what people may claim, he's not a historian of philosophy. Um, that there, that that to call someone a Deleuzean is uh, is it's not a slander, but it's a misnomer. And the same thing with mm. Larwell, that that I would not consider myself a Larwellian. Uh, whether or not I consider myself a non-philosopher yeah, that's is, interesting. Up, is, uh, is up for grabs because I am very passionate about the work of non-philosophy or what he calls now non-standard philosophy. Uh, for, well, there's, for there's, there's an issue of confusion. like principle and, principle and process here, right? So yes. um, you don't want to misrecognize the process for the principle. So when you say that I am a Deleuzean or I am a Laruelian, are you not sort of betraying, if you will, um, yes. the kind of dispositional framework of these schemas of thought themselves? Yes, I think that 
that Nietzsche, Deleuze, and and even Spinoza in his own way, but in his own, you know, um, that 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 each of them would 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 probably take umbrage at those who might call themselves followers mm. in the sense that they would call themselves Spinozists or Deleuzeans or Laruellians or Nietzscheans. They would all, they, I think they all practice in their own way a certain form of what Laruell defines as heresy, which is that true heresy, real heresy, uh, never attempts to reconstitute a school. It's not a schism in the same way because a schism in the church tries to reconstitute the true mm. path for the faithful, tries to cost, reconstitute a, a a real faith. And I think that, that Larwell is very serious about this. When, it, when he talks about heresy, he means it in a radical way, that, that it's not about reconstituting a school. It's not about uh, some sort of academy that, that, that one would indoctrinate oneself into. That, that dogma and doxa are two of the, the key... Um, stiflers of yes. of philosophical thought is is there a sense in which then that um, that non philosophy almost induces a kind of um, like wild prophetic form of thinking, kind of like think John the Baptist versus uh, Jesus or even Paul, right? The crazy one in the wilderness, crying out, eating locusts and dressing himself in sackcloth or whatever it is. That the, yeah. the non-philosopher is always that person yelling at the academy from the fringes. I love, yeah, I love this, Austin. I love this because you are you are sort of uh, pointing to one of the essays that that we prepared for the 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 response to Deleuze, his reply. Uh, his famous reply to Deleuze's and and Guattari's. If if we assume, it's hard to know how much writing Guattari had to do with what is philosophy. Um, one of Deleuze's last works. It's it's generally accepted that Deleuze wrote this more or less himself, but but mm. signed Guattari's name. Um, Guattari passed away within months of the uh, of that publication, but. Um, but yes, they, they, uh, his response to Deleuze, his reply is um, has to do with two footnotes, two, two really uh, interesting footnotes in what is philosophy, and one of which is the fact that when Deleuze claims Spinoza as Spinoza Christ as the event of philosophy, he Larwell claims that Deleuze is acting as the the John uh, as a John the Baptist against a kind of Paul who would Paul who would um, be the let's not say the dogmatic you know organizer of Christendom he's the he's the he's the one who systematizes theology yes that's yeah. right yeah, yeah and Deleuze and it's interesting you know just as a side note Badu has a very uh, famous book also translated by Brazier, uh, that I actually I actually find compelling, especially since it's written by an atheist. Uh, it's it's about it's about Saint Paul, right? Yeah, um, we're we're big fans of that book on this podcast. So both both Troy okay. and I actually come out of a religious background. So that book for us, right? As well as some of like Zizek's musings on theology, were really important for us to kind of, in right. the Kantian sense, wake us from our dogmatic slumber. You know. Well, as you know, I mean, the, Badu 
even as an atheist, even if he doesn't agree with the this this type of event or this type of musing, he boils down Paul to, you know, if Christ rose, all men rise. You know, and and that's, that's right. the event. That's that's the fidelity to to, to pay attention to. Yeah, it's that, um, the universality in Paul that there's neither male nor female nor slave nor free nor Jew nor Greek for all are one. It's that universality right. that Bedu sees right. in the Christ event that Paul is faithful to, that he exhibits his fidelity to, that I think that he says is a is a good analog for understanding the event, and then of course like post evental um, organization and stuff. So yeah. But you're, but you, but you are right to point out to Paul in a different sense for Laruel that that Paul would be the organizer. Paul would be the one right. to set what should be considered doctrine. And I think that 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 for Laruel, this is why I think Laruel would 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 not want people to label themselves as Laruelians. That for him, non-philosophy is for all men, for all generic humans. And, mm. and, and, and so Laruel would not want to consider himself as the founder of a non-philosophical school precisely because so much there's, 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 a, there's a, there's a tightrope. And, and this goes back to Nietzsche talking about the tightrope of, of, of ape and overman. You know, the man is the, is that tightrope. And I think for Laruel, there's a tightrope with non-philosophy and why he's discarded or why he has moved on from talking about non-philosophy is that in the beginning, I think he wanted to elicit the misunderstanding that philosophy would have with the denomination non-philosophy precisely because it seems like the non is a negation. Right. And Laura makes clear that that's not true, that that's not the non he's looking for. He's looking after the kind of celebrated non of non-Euclidean, right? When we right. speak of non-Euclidean geometry, we're not talking about an anti-Euclidean geometry. We're talking about a suspension of a certain postulate of Euclidean geometry that prevents it from thinking a relativistic curved universe. We're, we're suspending the postulate of parallel lines never meeting in infinity. And... Mm. And it's the same way with his non-philosophy, that he originally conceives of the non as a suspensive, uh, suspending certain postulates of philosophy that would base itself in the unity, convertibility, reversibility of postulate, or, sorry, of opposites. Um, mm. <clears throat> I, Which I really. Is why in the, yeah, yeah go, sorry, I was go gonna ahead. say I, I really want to get into this because I think the 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 issue of like how to kind of define, if you will, non philosophy. But real quick, before I forget, I was gonna say it's super interesting to think. Kind of just one last thing I was thinking on Paul, and I was just writing this down a minute ago. Uh, oh, it's yeah. interesting. It's interesting that we think of Paul as the systematizer. But you know what is also interesting? Paul is also the deterritorializing nomad as the church planter who travels yes. around and he deterritorializes the previous territorialized landscape of um, like Judaic orthodoxy and then also of like the Pax Romana and of um, the sort of uh, 
the, the Roman gods that had a sort of hegemonic role in the in the Roman Empire at that time. So he's also a deterritorializer. So what I wonder I agree. I is agree. he's both a deterritorializer and he's a reterritorializer. But I think he himself would hate it if someone was like, I'm a Paulinian. Because he would yeah, say, no, no, right. you don't follow me. We follow the universal message of the event. But it's That's really right. – it's Constantine and the church that then erects the uh, despotic That misunderstands regime. him. Yes, it's yes. Nietzsche saying, have I been misunderstood? Yes, Paul, I, I think that that's, that's, that's the crux of the issue when Paul talks about the church as Christ um, and the fact that the empire against which he was erecting or uprising appropriated that message to its own benefit, even after its downfall, mm. I think you're right that that would make him roll in his spin in his grave. <laughs> totally. Right? And so, and so, here's the thing. I wonder. Tell me what you think about this. Does this kind of analogously relate to maybe even we could say Laruel's role in relation to philosophy? Even though he sees himself as the John the Baptist figure, I wonder if that's almost too romantic and too like too limited because I think we could kind of say there's also a Pauline sense in which non-philosophy um, is kind of both this like disruptor of uh, the the philosophical authoritarian decision mm-hmm, tendency. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, you could, you could, I mean, you could, I, I'm sure there could be readings of non-philosophy that try to, like, re-canonize non-philosophy in a way. Right. And that would then be the betrayal of what it is that Laruel is kind of seeking to practice. Yes? This is a great question, and this is at least a two-part question. Okay. One, I, I, I'm not going to, what I will say is, the characterization of John the Baptist in his reply to Deleuze is actually characterizing Deleuze as John the Baptist. Mm. So I will, I will just put that there, and we could, we should return to that okay. after the second part, which would be that um, in the Dictionary of Non-Philosophy, which um, Urbanomic published simultaneously with the, the Philosophy and Non-Philosophy text, uh, which is both a handbook and yet its own characterization of what non-philosophy does because the uh, Laruel refers to uh, the Dictionary of Philosophy as a non-dictionary <laughs> insofar as it's not merely a reference but also reworks some of the, some of the terminology. Laruel makes clear here more than anywhere else that <clears throat> what's most important about the dictionary of philosophy is being an understood as a non-dictionary is that one cannot remain complacent with the reworking of philosophical terminology as what he'll call first terms because doing so would allow through the back door the same type of spontaneity or uh or resting upon a uh, on on language, on linguistic terminology that would erect these terms as, you know, capital C concepts proper. So what mm-hmm. Larwell wants to say is that if philosophy is taken as material to be reworked by non-philosophical rules and pragmatics and axiomatics, that non-philosophical terms too need to be subject relentlessly 
mm. in indefinite mode to the same type of reworking such that we never fall, uh, we never rest on our laurels that, yes, we have reworked Deleuze, we've reworked Badu, we've reworked Derrida, we've reworked the great philosophers, now we have, now our work is done. No, I think Laurel wants to say that the pragmatics... And he talks about this later as a transcendental computer who computes, thinks the terms of philosophy in this new mode. But it would be a, it would be a like a Turing test where the, 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 the computer never halts, where the process yes. never ends. Because if one stops and says, we have done the work, now philosophy can be reborn as non-philosophy, then we would actually begin to reconstitute a school. We would we would right. set a foundation that we could say, we've done it, we've fixed language <laughs> forevermore. And Larwell is against the once and for all. He 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 uh, in in his response to Deleuze, he talks about a a foi pour tout, which is uh, which he puts the S the foi S in uh, in parentheses because foi in French without the S is faith. And with the S is, 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 a, is a once. So it's, mm. it's not about a faith or a once for all. It's about a, he'll, he'll call it a one time each time. That, that non-philosophy mm. is pragmatics in its reworking of, of philosophical material. It's a one time each time. And non-philosophical reworkings, too, have to be subject to that process, lest we, as I said, rest on our laurels, rest, lest we uh, assume that we've done the work and we can we can bathe in the glory of besting philosophy because what what what, what i think non, what, why i think he another reason why he rejects non-philosophy as a term is at first he wanted to elicit not a philosophical resistance of course saying non-philosophy uh as a as though it were a negation of philosophy would arouse the philosopher's resistance Mm. But I, at a certain I, I, at a certain point, it's 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 counterproductive, right? Yes, I I really love this. This actually reminds me of some stuff in Difference and Repetition with Deleuze and mm -hmm. his examination of the image of thought, and then trying to erect yes. a different type of thinking as opposed to knowledge or thought. And this right. idea, I, what I just wrote down when you were talking, and I've been thinking through this a lot. Um, in my current research moving forward, but the idea of thinking for the first time every time so that that every time thinking is the first time of thinking, that there's this like right. almost singularity of thinking that yes, yes and 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 that with each new um, expression of thinking, uh, that that is the first time and that every time it repeats, let's say in the typical Deleuzean sense um, of a, of a repetition of difference, that that's, that's, there's something almost novel. It's almost like a, a type, and, and this might be blasphemy, but it, I'm thinking about like a kind of medieval update of occasionalism, that there's this like uh -huh. Uh -huh. A, yeah. a, a eruption that's being upheld, except maybe take away the transcendent conception of God and open right. it more to um, a kind of, I don't know if you would call it mystical or astral or transcendental, I guess would be the appropriate way to think through it. Larwell would want to call it a, a, a he distinguishes between um, mysticism on the one hand and what he calls mystique on the okay. other hand, which would be related to gnosis. But I'm actually curious, uh, because of your background, 
And for our for our listeners, will you will you um can you say a few words more about occasionalism, uh, so I can respond a little bit a little bit better? Yeah. So the typical idea of medieval occasionalism was about a debate uh, about how it is that reality is upheld, if you will. And uh, in very simple terms, the idea was that reality is perpetually being upheld and sustained by God at every given moment. I see. I and see. so that at each moment, there's kind of a sense in which uh, each occasion, if you will, is almost a, a brand new novel creation completely sustained by right. God. And, and Graham Harmon actually takes this in his his like actor network theory, object-oriented philosophy, and he kind of takes this in – does something similar with his uh, his his uh, his network, if you will, of objects, but without God. But that at every I moment see. there's a sort of like occasionalism where reality, that objects, that um, that relations are being upheld uh, spontaneously in their sort of like advent uh, in, in the moment. I don't think that's Harmon. That would be more my kind of like my reading. No, I like that. I like yeah. that. I like that. And and, and you know, um, I think it's Simon Don, but I'm trying to remember. There's some philosopher who, I think it's well, Simondo might be recapitulating another uh, thinker, but his point would be that a machine that requires a god to intervene at each moment, at each point, is less perfect of an engineer than, say, uh, the god of the deists who can. Uh, create a, a an assemblage of 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 the world or the cosmos that would mm-hmm. unfold according to its own laws and plans. Am I am I understanding occasionalism in that sense? That yeah, that, I, that, per- that that's so interesting. Yeah, which is which is totally um, heretical to say that, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and there's something interesting, even though I I wouldn't want to kind of espouse a kind of mechanistic deistic understanding of reality. There is something kind of um, just almost performatively interesting about opposing that to the idea that reality has to be sustained and upheld by God at, right. at all times. Because what does that say about you as a creator? That either says that you are uh, insufficient as a technician or yes. as an engineer, or it says, um, which I think would be the, then the more interesting way to view it, which kind of puts a positive spin up, or it says that like somehow you don't want to infringe upon the freedom of reality, or or maybe you just don't know the future because the future doesn't exist so there's this process philosophy that you even god yourself are being recreated in your right. of reality like that I would be kind that. of a cool way to view it you know but that that would point towards impotence which would yes. would would be against yes. doctrine right absolutely which would be against uh yeah i i think simon Don, and this is his his way of characterizing the machine i think this is the supplements to uh his um Information in light of the notions of form and information, which is a, a text that should appear next year in two volumes for the University of Minnesota. His his uh, celebrated uh, dissertation that Deleuze actually draws upon very heavily, um, and it's translated by yours truly. I'll just I'll just <laughs> do a humble brag. Plug plug um, yourself, man. Plug it. Yeah, I know it's it's. <laughs> I, I I urge think I urge listeners of the podcast to 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 read what Simon Don is out there, and there will be more. And this is a text that has been in the in. I mean, it's been he published that dissertation in '58, and the 
the actual citations that Deleuze makes in Difference of Repetition and in uh, in Logic of Sense and in Anti-Oedipus and in uh, A Thousand Plateaus, it was actually truncated. It was cut in half by uh, by the French University Press. Uh, it, it, they cut off the biological, physical part from the psycho-collective part, even though Simonon never intended for those parts to be uh, separate. And so when when Deleuze cites Simondon, he's only citing a very uh, truncated part. And in fact, and a reason why I bring this up, it wasn't until 1989 when Laurel got, uh, he became editor of a series by OBA that he published the truncated part. He published the psychic collective individuation part of Simondon that had never been published. So it's almost been 60 years since a full uh, translation of, well, it's been more than 60 years, of a full translation of Simondon, his principal thesis has reached an English audience. In fact, it wasn't until 2005 that the full thesis was published together in French. Hmm. So there's a weird temporality of, but it, that's not the point. The point being, uh, in the supplements, in, in part, in, in, in the, the second volume, Simondon talks about the machine and talks about why there is a problem with technocracy. And Deleuze himself diagnoses this in Logic of Sense in his own way. But for Simondon, the problem with technocracy, which was looming after World War II, is the fact that the machine is considered a slave. And in fact, I watched a, I watched a great episode, and I'm, I'm sorry to go on a kind of excursus, but I hope mm, you'll go. indulge me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, uh, have you ever watched Star Trek The Next Generation? You know what? I've actually never watched the next. I mean, like that, as a kid, as a kid, I watched little bits. Of that's it. okay. My, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll boil down my point to uh, the one of the the first mates on the Enterprise is uh, a character named Data, and he's an android who processes you know sixty trillion processes a second, and uh, it all comes down to he is being forced to transfer to a different ship so that he can be disassembled by a scientist who may or may not know how to reassemble him, but mm. wants to like assemble a race of androids. Mm. Uh, and the whole thing comes down to is Data, is this android property? Or does he have certain rights as a Starfleet uh, citizen officer? or member or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Is he? A, does he have rights? And it all comes down to that he fulfills the basic qualities, right? He has uh, he has self consciousness. He has initiative. He has, uh, in his own strange way, he has desires. Uh, and 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 mm. and so, in the end, yeah, he's he's ruled uh, a, a a a an actual um, officer rather than just mere property. 
Um, and there's a gender shift, right? The the guy that's trying to disassemble him calls him an it throughout the whole episode, and then mm. in the end he calls him a he. So there's this interesting like mm. shift from the neutral to the. But the whole point being um, that, oh God, what was my initial point? I guess I guess the whole point being. Well, this is so. This is about the machine, right? Um, yeah. And and so what I wonder is, is there even can we can, can I add a layer to this? Not only is yeah, it about please. rights, take over. But my question would be: Is is it possible to even reproduce that machine as a one to one kind of equivalent? Right. So you get data, you disassemble them so that you can create a fleet of datas. They all look the same. They all have the same sort of capacity for computing. But nevertheless, because of their context and the connections that they're going to make, they're going to compute things differently. They're still going to have a different sense of sapience and self-consciousness, self-awareness. So is there a sense in which our machines are endlessly being reproduced as sort of just like cogs in a in a uh, in a mimetic wheel? Right. Thank or, you, Austin. Yeah. Yeah, you help me. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Go, or go. is there something novel about about each iteration? Right. The, the I guess the the point I was trying to make in, in wrapping up the the Simon Don excursus was that um, what Simon Don points out is that the machine is misunderstood by the technocrat and technocracy as a slave, and as long as 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 we humans think of machines as merely slaves, as merely fulfilling our desires in some sort of uh, enslavement, that we misunderstand the machine's actual functions. Because the slave, no matter how enslaved they are, um, no matter their point of view, and one can think of like Epictetus, a famous philosopher slave who became, uh, a slave who became philosopher free man, um, the machine cannot revolt, and this is Simon Don's. This is like his 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 subtle Marxist streak that mm-hmm. that 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 the machine cannot revolt, and this is what they come to in the deliberations is that um, data offers instead of succumbing to a transfer and disassembly, he says, "I'll just resign." And a mm. machine cannot do such a thing. So, so they, they determine that the data is more than a machine. Um, that he has, well, first of all, he has the, <laughs> uh, he should be referred to as a gendered pronoun and not a neuter. Um, but, but also that he has aspirations, desires, wants, and rather than being disassembled by a scientist who may not be able to reassemble him. Because that's part of the problem, is that the scientist... Uh, there was a scientist who assembled data, as we know, who has perished at the, at the time, but whose work cannot be replicated by the cyberneticists. Mm. And they want to replicate that work. But to do so, they want to disassemble the one living artifact, and I say living, um, who could give them the knowledge that they could have to replicate consciousness um, or to replicate the kind of amazing, wondrous achievements that data uh, effectuates. And, but the scientist doesn't, doesn't know, for example, how to solve the riddle of the positronic brain. So disassembling data even with years of study, may not lead to 
replicating him, let alone reassembling him. So uh, well, this is the, this is the arrogance of technocracy, right? That right. The, the arrogance of right. technocracy, which isn't just simply like the proper technocrats that are sitting on the board of the UN or the WTO or whatever, right? No, like like technocracy is a sort of logical disposition to the world that says that we can reverse engineer everything and then we can just remake it in our own image. Right. But the problem is is that there is something sort of metaphysically authoritarian about that yes. frame of thinking itself, right? You hit it on the head. You hit it on the head. In the eighth series of structure in Logic of Sense, Deleuze says the technocrat's uh, friend, it, the natural friend of the technocrat is the dictator. Mm. And, and, and they're both the enemy of the revolutionary. Um, it's interesting to, to see there are moments, there are subtle moments in Difference of Repetition and in Logic of Sense where one can see Deleuze uh, quietly pushing forward his politics in a way that doesn't obtrude upon his philosophical investigations, mm. but that makes clear he has alliances with, again, like Simondon, subtly, with a Marxist dynamic that would have been the vogue in France in the 60s. Um, mm. And it, it, it really took, it, it did take Guattari to, to make that. Explicit, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then and then even in that connection, it makes it explicit, but it also mutates it, right? Um, because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. obviously Guattari's own projects, like in Molecular Revolutions, for example, there's a there's a, a radical uniqueness, and this is one of the things I actually it's like one of my pet peeves, and and I also get really sad when people just refer to either the Capitalism and Schizophrenia books as just Deleuze, or yes. Um, it, it, usually it's that. Usually it's just Deleuze. And there's actually this great, I think, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. You might know, but it's this great quote from Guattari where they say, like, hey, do you have any advice for, like, co-authoring a book? And he said something along the lines of, like, make sure that your name goes first on the book. Well, um, it's almost alphabetic to say Alphabetically, Deleuze right. Guattari. So he's yeah. like, make sure, you, make sure you choose somebody whose name is, like, after yours alphabetically. I, think I, 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 <laughs> I honestly don't think Guattari was... I don't think he had sour grapes about it. I think I think you he know, was being tongue in cheek. I think he was making a joke. I think he was. I yeah, think yeah. he was. But there is something the interesting, way, right? That yeah. that we forget about that that machinic assemblage of D and G that is so integral, or G and D, we could even say that it might be just kind of like a fun inversion to emphasize that that this isn't just Deleuze, because even though it's an an explication of things that were implicit in Deleuze's earlier work. The political program of capitalism and schizophrenia is very much that sort of like bee and flower kind of assemblage that they talk about even, you know? That yeah, a, there, yeah. There, there, there is a mutuality there where Guattari brings out the implicit into uh, explicated form, but there's also then new sort of um, implications and intensities and things like that that we also need to not just simply think that it's not just a bud to flower kind of relation, I think, from like difference in repetition and logic of sense to the capitalism and schizophrenia books, you know? No, I, I, I've, I've argued this and logic of sense with its, not, notwithstanding its own implicit political leanings, um, it ends in, an, in a sort of impasse. If you follow the thread throughout the series, it ends in a kind of Lacanian impasse towards the phantasm, which is not, mm. which does not 
knock at the door of desiring machines, which Deleuze himself says Guattari was light years ahead of him mm. with mm. with the idea of, of desiring machines. And you see a shift in Anti-Oedipus. You see a lot of logic of sense, especially plugged into Anti-Oedipus. For example, the connective, conjunctive, and disjunctive series are already announced in, uh, I think, the, the seventh series of uh, Logic of Sense. Uh, but the, 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 the standard biography, and this goes back to Doss's biography, but you can, you can see also from the Anti-Oedipus papers, and Deleuze himself talks about this in, I think, Two Regimes of Madness, but it may be Desert Islands, where he says, look, Guattari wrote the bulk of uh, Anti-Oedipus. He wrote the bulk of uh, A Thousand Plateaus. My job was to, to edit, to revise, to dialogue, to work this into a coherent whole. Hmm. Um, and people forget that. People people do forget that. And, and, and Larwell himself forgets that. In his response to Deleuze, hmm. even though, as I said, it is acknowledged today, I think more or less widely that Deleuze probably wrote the bulk of what is philosophy. One can tell from the tenor of the book. One can tell from the... The, the way in which the conceptual framework... I mean, philosophy is creation of concepts. That's not... Uh, Guattari is, is such a jack-of-all-trades. It's, it's really... That's not what he was after. Um, in any case, I won't try to, you know, defend that proposition. But, but Laurel himself, only once... It could be twice. I'm trying to remember... But only once in the response to Deleuze, first of all, the, the fucking title should be Response to Deleuze and Guattari. Right, because it's a, a response to a co-authored text. <laughs> yes. Right. But the one time he says Guattari's name, he does something that I actually like, where he doesn't say Deleuze and Guattari. He says Deleuze hyphen Guattari. Hmm. And, if, and if the listeners... Uh, know anything about Laurel and his importance placed on the hyphenation? The the hy the hyphen in Laurel is extremely important, and he thematizes it. He can you explain? Can you explain uh, why a extra- little bit? Yeah. Well, okay. So, for example, um, Hugh Tomlinson and Graham Birchall, they um translate. Larwell's footnotes to Larwell for Larwell, they translate non-philosophy without a hyphen, and okay. this is, and the and 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 this is actually a, a a faux pas because in philosophy and non-philosophy he actually states the difference between non-philosophy without a hyphen and the way it's been used, just in the in the in the connotational sense and normal sense as that which is generally layman, right? That which is not philosophy. Hmm. And he places importance. He, 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 he explicitly distinguishes non-philosophy sans hyphen against non-philosophy with a hyphen as he, as he categorizes it, as he tries to make explicit that his form of non-philosophy with the hyphen is the euclidean non 
right? It's the it's the non-Euclidean. It's the it's it's merely the suspension of a certain postulate of a certain discipline, and not the negation of such, or okay. not the antithesis yeah. of such. Can can I throw something out to you? I was thinking about this yesterday. I was reading through um, you know some of Laurel's essays and um, uh, uh, and then the introduction to that. Um, that that volume that you sent me. What's the title of that volume, by the way? Again, it's called the Non Philosophy Project. Yes. Okay. And I was and I was thinking through something with regards to how he views his project, uh, in in a sort of a similar sense, at least um, the the signifier, if you will, of non philosophy is similar to the signifier of non Euclidean. It felt to me that rather than saying philosophy for Laruelle is the noun that is being negated by the non, it's almost mm-hmm. that philosophy is the adjective. It is a predicate. It is an act of predication. And the problem with philosophy for Laruelle is that philosophy predicates everything from within its own um, lockbox, so to speak. Right. And so because of that, it sort of, uh, it kind of over-determines how everything is one analyzable from the perspective of the priors of philosophy. So non-philosophy isn't a negation of philosophy. It isn't saying that we don't do philosophy anymore like Richard Dawkins does or something like that, right? right. Like it's it's outdated and it's pointless and we just have different forms of scientific rationality and technological reason. No, it's it's similar to what non-Euclidean geometry is doing, which is modifying geometry as the object or the subject, let's say, of the sentence. So it's a predication or a qualification and an inversion of the axiomatic relation between uh, Euclidean geometry to geometry via the non-Euclidean in relation to geometry. So similarly, non-philosophy is an inversion or transformation of the predication, the act of predication on the subject, which is thinking. So instead of philosophical thought, the project of non-philosophy is a different act of predication on thought or a different form of predicating, which is that perpetual process of rethinking thinking itself. Does that make you know, sense? You know, Austin, I, I really appreciate that. I think that that is a very astute observation, uh, and I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass. I think <laughs> that that I think that that is 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 a really nice way to encapsulate it. Um, yes. And, okay. And then and go then, ahead. Go ahead. And then yeah. And then the last thing I would say is that and then so what that means then is if it's a transformation of the act of predicating, then what that means is for Lara Well that you have to kind of tran- uh, transform, and this is where I, I, I'll throw it to you, transform or rework, if you will, the very mm-hmm. axiomatic priors or um, starting points that relate you to the subject. And the subject here then maybe is the real. And so, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but then philosophy can only think of the real or to the real or about the real. Whereas then what Laura Well is doing with his non-philosophical shift of thinking is trying to then think from the real and that's how he does it is by inverting that relation of predicate to subject yeah he also talks about it as thinking according to the real and the and the and the french um preposition there is ceylon uh so you could translate it also as in line with the real because what he wants to think is 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 what he calls unilaterality where the real is not just not first, but actually before first, 
and um, there is no question of priority or primacy, but uh, the real, or what he calls the one, is, is before first, and one then thinks irreversibly from it. There's no reversibility, right? So, so, so yes, his problem with philosophy is that for too long it is spontaneously thought of language as co-determining, co-realizing the real, uh, as being equal to the real, and and thereby that shows its its hubris, its uh, naivete, as you'll say with the Luz, mm-hmm. its spontaneity. That it can think that when it says it's when it when it says words, it determines the real in return. And there's no return for for Larwell with the one or the real. That if we are to describe the real, if the real is able to be res- described, that is only without return, without any sort of co-determination. And according to certain axioms that respect the real's radical autonomy. Mm. So, um, and that implies then that philosophy can't discuss itself from within itself. So when Larwell responds and replies to what is philosophy and says that, that philosophy is at the center of this work and uh this book and this book is at the center of philosophy he's trying to say that the question what is philosophy cannot be asked from within philosophy that this question is a moot point from within philosophy and has to be asked from an external discipline that can respect philosophy's autonomy not intervene and try to fix philosophy or change it or negate it as non-philosophy might imply, which is why also, as I said, he's moved on to a different terminology of non-standard philosophy. Um, yeah, because it's it not like he denigrates the value of you know, philosophical history and the philosophical orientation and like amazement and wonder and puzzlement on all of these things that categorize right. philosophy. Right, right. Right. It's that... Yes, you're right, because philosophy is born in wonder, as we know. I mean, that's mm. that's how Plato describes it, right? Philosophy is born in the wonder that there is and 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 that things are and and and, and not and uh, that there is and there is not, right? It's it's, it's right. It, there's there's something about but but and, and I get this question sometimes. I get this question where I'm like where I get the question where it's like, Okay, well Laura was talking about this stuff, but why doesn't Larwell talk about life or experience or, you know, the stuff that's interesting? And it's like, yeah, that's just interesting. And that's the stuff that philosophy talks about. And that's, mm. that, that's really fun. But that's not what Larwell's doing. Larwell is doing a very formal project where he's talking about how philosophy talks about life, experience, etc. And so if you, if you want to get that, then... Then your then then non-philosophy is not for you. Is it too um, is it too Deleuzian or maybe even post-Kantian to say that he's investigating the conditions of philosophy's own discourse on the world and 
but it's like a no. Crit- I think I think I think yeah. that that's a, I think that that's a good way to with, with certain caveats and reservations. I think that that's a very good way to say it. But go on, please. Well, yeah, and then I was going to say, and then of course it's like a critical transcendental project of philosophy's own enclosure within itself, right? Like, so I've got right. this quote. I've got this quote here from the intro of the text that you sent me on the non-philosophical project, and it says, and this is referring to um, the project of philosophy. These supposedly self-critical philosophies are in fact insidious exaltations of philosophy's power to know its own limitations and to preemptively incorporate all forms of non-philosophical thought. So that the, 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 and what the, he means, what this means there is that philosophy has this arrogance that it can always be, it can philosophize about everything, a philosophy of math, a philosophy of film, a philosophy of politics, of economics. A philosophy of philosophy. A philosophy of philosophy, metaphilosophy, right? But philosophy can never get outside of that kind of um, its own encasement, Right. And that there's, I, I like that. Yeah, and so there's like this, there's like this, um, there's this metaphysical ignorance then that philosophy has. Even though philosophy tries to claim that it investigates metaphysics, it's actually ignorant of its own metaphysical fealty to its own priors, which then leads to a type of epistemological arrogance itself. And so maybe Laruel is coming along and trying to philosophize with a hammer in the Nietzschean sense and say, well, yeah, let's, even, I love that. let's even be more radical and let's, let's kind of, um, let's put your own even transcendental methods to a higher order of transcendental methodology or a, or a critical uh, uh, methodology that will then kind of allow thought to truly be infinite thought or infinite thinking. The question of infinite thought and infinite thinking, I'm going to leave aside because okay. I think he, he wants to reserve that for Deleuze's aspirations. Okay, but uh, uh, just a just a novel form of thinking. But, but it, it was I, yeah. I, I'm I'm only quibbling about a certain terminology. Everything okay. else you said was on point. Huh. So why do you think people like to me? So I I'll be honest, like. I, I, I can see where the struggle comes from because it is counterintuitive sometimes. And I also think that there's an arrogance of philosophy where it, it doesn't want to admit that something else might uh, – like, that, 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 like how dare you criticize our precious discipline sort of thing. But wh- right. wh- why do you think people have a difficult time with Laruelle beyond just the terminology? Because a lot of um, – French post-phenomenological texts are difficult to access. So it's not that. Yes. Like, people no, read right. of grammatology a shit ton. And that's a difficult text. So why do you it's... think there's like a resistance maybe or a reticence to incorporate Laruel um, at a broader scale? I will say one of the reasons why of grammatology may be difficult in English is because despite its second edition, it's it's still not translated well. Mm. Um, that's my one little, like, as a translator, I, and, and, and part of it obviously is because Derrida is notoriously hard to translate. So that's (laughs) what I'll just leave it at. But, um, my first answer is obviously the fact that you consider, if we consider the Academy in the 20th century, especially this latter half, well, we're now in the 21st. If we consider the the tw- uh, you know, but also if we just consider the the latter half of the twentieth twentieth century, we consider 
the quote-unquote French invasion that someone like Jordan Peterson would decry. And I, I mentioned <laughs> this to you before we started recording. Yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna address that. No. But um, philosophy as a as a academic disciplinary uh, milieu as as its own discipline in the academy it really is faced with this choice of in my opinion in the future and i could be wrong but in my opinion in the future it's faced with this choice of become interdisciplinary or or die and mm. it seems it, and it really seems to me as a student of comp comparative literature which is all about inclusiveness and sort of pulling from all of the humanities that philosophy is resistant to that mm. uh, depending on the de depending on the department depending on the the, the, the school uh, on the university it, it is either wanting to sort of in, entrench itself into the uh, analytic mode of sort of you know, at, at the most concrete, the symbolic logic, which has its merits, uh, or into a sort of catch-all continental um, pervasiveness. You know, in, in any case, it it's faced with its own replication. And Deleuze, or Deleuze, Deleuze, well, well, Deleuze does address this in himself, but if we look to Laura Well. In, in philosophy and non-philosophy, in the introduction, he's very quick to say, why is it that the arts were able to mutate in this expansive way with the advent of abstract art in a mm -hmm. way that, that, that called into question the ever-exacting pervasiveness of representationalist art one could see the downfall of this for example with like uh jacques louis david and and the oh god what's the painting doesn't matter the uh with picasso with with jackson uh you can see the the ways in which art called into question it's it's calling to represent the real. And I mean by the real here in a very circumscribed sense, in the sense of represent uh, perceptual reality. Hmm. And, and that calling was called into question, was shown to be limiting. The same with 12-tone uh, serialism and, let's say, jazz music which the east had already shown with its blue tones and it's and it's much more expansive sort of it, it's much more expansive notation of the possibility of music that with 12 some serialism and and not even to go into um the gosh guachery calls upon this uh the symphonist i'm trying to remember his name it doesn't matter but it, the but art, music, and even science with non-Euclidean geometries, uh, with, with Einsteinian relativity, there were these 
immense mutations going on. Mm. And what philosophy was capable of, even including Deleuze, Derrida, they may have pushed the limits of philosophical position, so to speak, and, and his engagement with the other, etc. I mean, Laruel is a is 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 a is an a, avid reader of of Levinas, so the the kind of heteropathic Judaic dose of the the Judaic other, um, it was able to distend and push to intra-philosophical limits. But for Laruel, it never truly. Um, engage the kind of mutations that that art music science was able to show in the past century and he wants to say that non-philosophy can procure for philosophy not against it not in it but perhaps for it for its future is there a sense uh, in which we can also? Mutations. Is there a yeah. sense in which we can also es- uh, excavate other? You're talking about music. Um, could we also excavate like ancient poetry or mystic philosophy, and and find a source of um, th- that would be like a useful material for non-philosophical practice? Like, so I have a quote in my head. We had a a friend came on who's actually done a lot of work on Laruel and um, messianity. Um, uh-huh. But his name is Tim, and he came on and spoke with us about poetry a couple episodes back. And I can't remember the name of the poet, but I think it was a Persian poet who talks about um, unstruck music. Oh, that's nice. And I loved I like it. it. It's been resonating with me for a while because yeah, because this seems to – and I don't know enough about the difference that Laura Well makes between mysticism and mystique, but this seemed that – that there is a sort of mystique, maybe, or a mysticism, if if, yeah. uh, if I'm not just conflating the terms here, about this idea of unstruck music, and that you talk about um, Eastern music as kind of speaking this different, um, uh, a different tonality. Yeah, yeah, that and and that maybe there's that, that what that in their different expression of musicality, that there's a different connection with the real, that there's a different connection with. Um, with the beyond, we might say that yeah. that maybe in itself is unstruck, and that if we can tap into that unstruckness, we might always misrecognize it in its unstruckness. But there's a way to translate it, to attest to it, to um, be affected by it, and then to relate to it. If those aren't too um, uh, like imprecise terms, do you know what no, I mean? No, no, then, no. Yeah, I like ahead. all this. Yeah, I like all of this. I mean, I would quickly say, insofar as it comes with philosophy, it's not about an unstruckness, but maybe a restruckness. The word you said earlier about reworking, reworking philosophy as material. How can yeah. we take philosophy as material, symptom, occasion for a reworking? Or uh, the French is remaniement, which is a rehandling. How can we rehandle philosophy but respecting its identity respecting its identity respecting its not mixing it with other philosophies which is what hegel would want to do right with Schelling and fichte with the out with the alpha bong canceling them out how can we respect their identity and 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 rework them in a way that orients them towards 
the real, uh, uh, from the real, according to the real, according to the one. Um, and so for me, I always think of it as, what if you take philosophical statements of, say, Leibniz, Heidegger, Kant, Nietzsche, whatever, and one inscribes within, uh, in the reworking, in the rehandling, one, one respects the identity of it by inscribing within it a sort of suspension of the authority of philosophy, which means uh, inscribing within it the kind of cancellation of its own decisionality, its own authority. Uh, and Lar this is part of what Larwell is trying to do with his experimental works. When he does variations on Leibniz, when he does, uh, when he does variations on Hegel's uh, pronouncements about man is this night, um, which is on the, the fractal, the, it's, it's in the biography of the eye. It's, it's all about inscribing within the philosophical um, statement, literature, philosopher, the acknowledgement of the reals before first priority without mixing philosophers together or philosophical statements together in some sort of alphabung or cancellation or dialectic. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a variation on a theme, but it's a variation that makes the theme foreign to itself, yet without intervening in the theme or, or, or dogmatically saying what the, the, the artist or philosopher should do. That's all about the non, that, that, that as we know, uh, Euclidean statements about geometry, Euclidean propositions can be translated into non-Euclidean geometry without any effort. But non-Euclidean uh, propositions cannot be retranslated into Euclidean mm. statements. Hmm. But it's, but but the non-Euclidean doesn't doesn't modify doesn't doesn't intervene. It, it, this is a big thing for Larwell. It doesn't intervene, or or or, or do, Larwell calls it a minimal violence. There's a minimal. <laughs> he calls it a minimal wrong. There's a minimal wrong, and and, and the word is, is in French is tort. Uh, it, it's a it, it's a legal term. There's a hmm. minimal injustice, if you will. There's a minimal wrong, there's a minimal harm done to philosophical statements in their reworking. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm trying, yeah, I'm trying to think because I know that, um, God, what, what, there's a word and I'm trying to think. I love this, this minimal injustice. It's, um, it's almost like, uh, no, we'll just leave it at that. A minimal injustice, a minimal violence, a minimal harm, a minimal wrong. I do like that. I think... I think in the legal that, sense, too, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I love that, actually, that you say that in the legal sense. Because um, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is the idea of the logic of conversion. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like... In, so in Christianity, there is this doctrine of salvation that unfolds through justification, sanctification, and glorification. And justification is actually a legal term um, that uh -huh. actually declares your innocence before the quote-unquote courtroom of heaven. You are declared innocent before God. 
And then, even though you're justified, you're still not holy. You're still not godlike or Christ-like. So you have to go through the process of sanctification. And then the goal is ultimately that you would reach the telos, which is glorification, where you have like a fully um, regenerated self that is... Not, I'm sorry, I don't want to say regenerated because that actually implies at the moment of, of, of justification too, but you have a fully realized expression of your new nature, which is the embodiment of Christ-likeness, right? Which doesn't come until the afterlife, right? Can you, can you but, say the, the, the thinker that you're drawing upon? I, I'm really curious. This is beautiful. Well, this, is, this is kind of, um, I would say, canonized. I was thinking of Augustine, but I, I, I don't know this as well as you do. Well, it would start with like, this is kind of canonized um, uh, Protestant and, and, and even okay. Catholic theology. It's just the process of how one goes through justification, sanctification, and glorification okay. is different. And here's where I actually find it really interesting. Philosophy, uh, standard philosophy, has a sort of logic of conversion. And there's this moment of legal uh, declaration that anything mm-hmm. is potentially philosophizable, Right. So, yes. so let's take um, let's take economics or finance, uh, which is something that I'm working on a lot lately. We don't have to go into it, but like finance is a field that typically is viewed as not being a philosophical discourse. But you can potentially philosophize about finance. So there is critical finance literature. You could do a philosophy of finance. So finance can be converted, and once you convert it, once you convert it, you're like justifying it. But the problem with philosophy I see. is it can only justify and create that legal declaration from within its own transcendent framework, which is that authoritarian despotism that we were talking about. There's a sort of almost a, a technocratic logic here because then what happens is once you declare, in our example, finance as being philosophizable, it's not perfectly philosophized yet so it has to go through the process of sanctification which is the process of like liturgy or we might call it piety or in philosophical terms we might uh, call it analysis right or critique yes. or something right, like yeah, that yeah critique yeah and then the goal is is that well maybe one day we'll have a real philosophy of finance and we'll understand what finance quote unquote is and that's the the hope of glorification but i feel like then what non-standard philosophy is doing is by having this minimal violence that what it's doing is it's kind of saying no that justification that you're bestowing upon potentially everything else in this case finance itself is already too front-loaded you know what i mean yeah uh, there's Laruel wants to be so minimally non-interventionist that that while I agree with you, it's Laruel doesn't want to change what philosophy does insofar as philosophy is always able to produce effects from within itself. It's always able to produce. And he okay. talks about this as a, as a commodity form. He talks about it as, as a market. He will talk about philosophy as this this sort of commodity on on the exchange market mm. uh we you know in america we, we we use that that awful phrase marketplace of ideas right 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 um and and i think for laura well it's if non-philosophy were to intervene in philosophy then it would re-instantiate the it would it would give 
reasoning to the resistance that philosophy has because it's like oh and 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 larwell has to, i mean i i will i will blame larwell for some of these things like for example um you know larwell's famous exchange with derrida where he puts in derrida's mouth that oh you Lar, uh non-philosophy is is the terrorist of non-philosophy which uh our philosophy which is which is not what derrida says but larwell kind of makes him say it and this is actually available online i'll have to uh it doesn't matter uh well i can put i can put links in the in the show notes and stuff so just shoot me shoot me over some stuff later yeah yeah i mean this is uh this has been translated this is a the few exchanges that that the one famous exchange that larwell had with with derrida uh, about yeah it's it's basically having derrida say that that He's claiming non-philosophy is a is a is a terrorist, and that's not true. Um, but mm. in any case, uh, yeah, there's there's something to what you said, especially about the uh, justification, sanctification, glorification. Is that the three stages? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of a. I, I wrote a I read a paper as an as a graduate student uh, about Augustine. Plotinus and and Descartes, and it mm. was called uh, it was it was a it was a line from Augustine. It was called a versi sumus uh, perversi sumus, right? It's we we turn away from God, we uh, you know we we pervert ourselves towards God, right? It's 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 a hard phrase to translate, but um, Larwell makes a lot about the turn. And turning, mm. so this question of conversion is is interesting. Because does Larwell, yeah, what does he say about the turn? Well, because in 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 Christian terms, that's yeah. the idea of um, like repentance, right? Mm-hmm. It, it comes from the Greek metanoia, which is you know a sort of uh, a shift, literally in thought, right? You're going one direction, and then it kind of shifts completely in the other direction. It's this. This transformation, if you will, of your disposition to the world, and right, and yeah, I'm curious to see because because what I'm thinking through is I'm thinking through philosophically, um, there seems to be a sort of like suppressive form of conversion that everything is potentially convertible. We could even think of this in terms of like capitalism that everything is potentially an asset or everything is potentially um, a commodity. Everything is potentially capitalizable. And I feel like there's this real suppressive authoritarian logic there that then issues through the different stages of sanctification that can only operate, they can only unfold, and I mean unfold, not enfold, they can only unfold according to that like moment of legal declaration where you are innocent in justification or in that moment of conversion or metanoia. But I wonder if non-philosophy might give us resources to think about conversion in a way that doesn't suppress, right? The, the what is the what is the conversion from the context of like the advent or like the novel? You know what I mean? Like what yeah. would a turn mean without kind of subsuming ourselves under the authoritarianism of like a transcendent dogmatic image of thought? I mean, this is this is very interesting because I mean, for me, it it, it dives into this etymological illusions with an A that 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 Larwell likes to make. Larwell is famous for for not ever wanting to make citations. Uh, but yeah, he I've heard a, this. Yeah, but he makes a lot of allusions 
and one of the allusions he makes is etymological, and it has to do with the 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 verse and the vault, and both of them have to do with turning. So hmm. this question of conversion, of convertibility, of reversion, uh, reversibility, and also it comes back to Heidegger Heidegger's uh, turn, the 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 Kara. Hmm. Um, He'll even go so far as to claim that well, we don't need revolution, which is a potentially reversible turning. We need a we need rebellion, and he'll talk about this in various places. Um, uh, but all of it comes back to philosophy's metier. It's it's kind of milieu is. Uh, is the turn and specifically mm. convertibility, reversibility, specifically for what he called what Laurel calls the the transcendentals, and this stems back to Plato with the one being the multiple, the many, the one of the many. All of these are dialectically uh, convertible, re- reversible, and he diagnoses this too in in Deleuze to a certain extent. Um, and for Laura Well, what it's about is a a. I mean, I'll 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 make up my own neologism. It's a univertibility, or what he calls with a hyphen. And this is back to the, your question about the hyphen. He will talk about uh, a general universality without the hyphen, um, but he will talk about a uni hyphen versality, which. I kind of try to translate roughly as a, a one turnedness, right? Mm. That, that, that everything, as you said, uh, syntactically correctly, that, that everything is turned from the one, that everything, that the one, as I said, is before first, and everything is turned from the one is, is according to the one. And so true universality for him with the hyphen is, is, is non-philosophies, uh, rehandling and as I said, a, a kind of reinscription of hmm. the ones before first priority. Uh, that that if thought slash philosophy later on is first, the one is before first, precisely because thought is foreclosed to the one, which means yes. that thought cannot. Thought cannot think the one directly. It can, can only describe, think itself thinking thought. It can describe the one according to uh, rigorous rules and, and axioms. If if we are to consider it to, to do the proper respect to the one and not repress the one. Because this is what I tell people that, that, that sometimes... I've, there's a misunderstanding about non-philosophy, uh, not just with the the the, the, nom, the nomination, but but also with the fact that um, non-philosophy is this simultaneous, but not at the same time. Just bracket that. It's, it's a simultaneous, but not at the same time, theory, <laughs> analysis, and pragmatics of hmm. philosophy. And what that means is. Um, and yet, as we read Laruel, he has to expatiate, you know, 
you know, kind of disquisition about philosophy in a certain logical order. And usually he starts with a theory. And the theory is about the one and, and, and what the, the before first priority of the one entails, which, you know, goes into these questions of what, what if philosophy were to unlock itself from a certain um, uh, gridlock that it has always had based on a, what he calls a Heraclitian postulate or this Parmenidian sort of unity of contraries. This is how he describes it early on in philosophy two and, and philosophy and non-philosophy. But, but then the analysis is philosophy's resistance to the name of the real. And a lot of that has to come with its jealousy of science. Um, a lot of that has to come with philosophy's, the fact that philosophy is able to spontaneously talk about lived experience, talk about science, talk about reality, quote unquote, without any sort of procedures of verification or falsification like science has. So there's a jealousy that science is able to actively put its own postulates hmm. and pronouncements to the question and say, well, can this experiment be reproduced? Can we verify the, the outcomes of the experiment? And philosophy can't do that. As we know, you know what's um, so interesting. You say yeah. this, and it, and, and I mean this in actually a positive way. But it kind of gives me an anxiety about the thing that I love, which is philosophical history and investigation, right? And I think yeah. it's a it's a healthy anxiety. It's an anxiety because precisely what you're saying that there is a there's an envy, I think, of philosophy of science of its practical import and of. It's, yep. uh, it's valorization in communities. Like, we can go to the fucking moon because of science. What can we do because of philosophy is the question, right? And I think there are a great many things, of course, that we can. Obviously, I think both of us do. But nevertheless, it's not as immediately uh, expressible what it is that we yes. can do with philosophy. And there's a big chip, I think, on philosophy, if we can abstract it in that way, on la, its he calls shoulder. It la, he calls it la philosophy, and he'll, he'll put a... Oh, like great. A, like, a, yeah. like in French, you have to say the law. In, in English, you don't have the definite article, but in French, you have the, he'll, he'll like italicize the law or, you know, you can like, so you can imagine philosophy underlined. That's how Brazier yes. translates it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, the philosophy. There's a chip mm. on the philosophy's shoulder, <laughs> you know? Yes, yes I agree. Huh. I agree. And, and, you know, I mean, uh, it, I, it's interesting. There are certain... I saw an article, a great article, um, recently about the positive effects of students taking philosophy classes, the positive effects in their real life. And, and so there is something to be said about the lived experience of actual human beings who dare to not know, because it's not about knowing, but it's about questioning one's own knowledge, right? It's about putting to test one's own assumptions. So mm. there is something healthy, I think, about that. Um, and Laurel wants to take that to an extreme and wants to say mm. if philosophy is serious about its own therapeutics, it can't be the doctor of itself. It can't be the judge and jury of itself. As Nietzsche said about uh, the way that we might judge life, that as, as livers, 
in you know, as those who have life, we cannot judge the value of life. To do so is to disparage it, is to already, we are already judge and jury, and we are already in a state of resentment. And, yeah. and, and I think that, 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 I think that philosophy, this is, this is, this is my weird devil's advocate thing, because when I talk to Joe, for example, on the podcast about psychoanalysis, and I talk to him about anti-Oedipus, and we get to Freud, and Freud is 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 not treated uh, very fairly. Oh well, uh, that's not fair. He's not treated uh, welcomely. You know, he's he's put to the test, and yes. usually it's the later Freud. I try to point out that the early Freud has a spirit of science, has a spirit of openness, has a spirit of the fact that a lot of what he is proposing is speculation, and his and these propositions as in science, should be collapsible and need to be discarded if they prove to be false or disparaging of lived conditions. And I try to say that, you know, even if Freud, especially with the Oedipal Complex, as a universal model of how humans experience life, even if that falls into, um, with a talking cure, curating uh, subjects as neurotics for capitalism. I think with the early Freud, especially, one can see that what he is really after is is helping people, helping people who, mm. who, who have reached a deadlock in their lives and who can't go forward with normal, everyday activities. And so as much as I want to critique Freud for especially his later attempts to as he's approaching his, his his imminent death as he's trying he wants to like so badly uh box in square the the circle of his science i i i want to think and this could be my my bias i want to think that he was trying to help people mm. and and i think the same thing with philosophy at the end of the day that i do think you know Kant, Hegel, whoever, I think that at the end of the day, I don't think they were just intellectually masturbating. I think that, that, that they were trying to move the dial forward on, you know, knowledge. Well, and uh, how to, how to live, the, joy, how to live, good how life. To live yeah, yeah, how, how to, to live, live the good life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I personally, I even though I'm not a Levinasian, <laughs> to, uh, to go back to that, I, I love the idea that philosophy gets transformed into ethics precisely at least as a provocative statement because to me one of the things that, that is missed so much in academic philosophy is that philosophy should I think essentially be or let's say it always is but sometimes these elements are hidden or repressed in favor of the more analytical and quantifiable manageable bits but that really philosophy um, does speak about how we live, how we think, how we orient ourselves to the world, how we um, mm -hmm. are disposi mm -hmm. dispositionally attuned to the objects of investigation. That's Philosophy is eminently concerned with that at all times. The question for me is, is um, what do we do with that? What do we do with that like framing of how it is that we face the world? 
And I think that, um, you know, you look at someone like Kant, and one of Kant's primary concerns is the notion of freedom. That's why you can't base an ethic on the hypothetical imperative, because that doesn't give you freedom. But the categorical imperative can. And I think Hegel's philosophy working through Kant is then also trying to think about freedom and politics. And that's why he talks about the state and stuff like that. I mean, which those are all socio-ethical concerns. They're not just simply, like you said, masturbatory thinking about oneself because I want to, I don't know, to see how smart I can get with my abstract ideas. No, right, it's, right. it's always about changing and transforming and bettering, improving, um, unpacking, challenging, whatever. There's, there's always an ethical mode um, that I think cuts through integrally in philosophical investigation. Yeah, I mean, I think this is why Laruel, he, he, he doesn't reject philosophy. In fact, he, he claims that it is necessary, that non-philosophy cannot function without philosophy. And one of the reasons being, despite the fact that he will propose uh, non-aesthetics, non-ethics, etc., one of the reasons being is that philosophy is the most prepared material it is the most let's say densified reified object that thought can take as a material for a reworking like philosophy mm-hmm. is even if it it may sometimes go up its own ass and smell its own farts it it really has worked on the four corners the uh, of 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 thought and 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 pack, packed it in and so what non-philosophy tries to do is show it that it can it can have a uh, a breath of fresh air to the outside hmm. if 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 it recognizes the fact that the limits are of it are limits it imposes upon itself precisely because it misrecognizes language's role i mean this is at least, obviously, he's taken it to a kind of quantic uh, level in in the recent stuff, which I could get into. But I, I, I I'm I'm kind of wanting to spare your your readers, yeah. well, uh, your yeah, listeners we'll, we'll for now. Yeah. yeah, but uh, but part of it is that philosophy has what's most interesting about philosophy as a material is that is it, it it has it it is so dense in its compactification of of lived experience of rumination of uh well what our aristotle would call contemplation mm. that 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 it provides the most fruitful material but it's not but this goes back to the theory analysis pragmatics it's not just a material it is also a symptom as i said of a resistance to the real which is basically that that philosophy qua language cannot co-determine the real cannot uh that in its attempt to specify reality it 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 overshoots its goal and Mm. it and it and it and it claims it pretends to be able to specify what 
what the real, what the one is, which for Laura Well is a misstatement precisely because the real, the one uh, are not objectifiable, uh, that, that doing so is an objective appearance, as Hegel might say. And it's also an, an occasion. It's an occasion for reworking. It's an occasion for rehandling. It's an mm. occasion for this mutation that, and, and Laura Well will say, instead of a Euclidean, it's it's a Riemannian or Lobachevskian mutation that 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 philosophy needs in order to, um, in order to secure for its future new writings and practices that would be really new and not merely yeah. either at the basis level archivalist commentary hermeneutics. Not that he rejects all hermeneutics. That's a different question, but the archivalist position of, of merely um, commenting, the hermeneutics in the old sentence, um, and at the, at the limit would neither be a Deleuzian attempt to reinvigorate philosophy from the inside and ask the question of what is philosophy from the inside, which is why he rejects Deleuze's statement about non-science, or Derrida's and Levinas's um, taking philosophy to its limit on the linguistic side of distending it, distending philosophical position, but at the end merely reversing positions. Um, in fact, you know, this is the interesting about Laura Well that people may not understand. I'll summarize and let you talk. Okay. Well, I was gonna, why don't you summarize, and then let's let well that'll be the button um, on the episode, and then we'll, we'll sure. put an ellipse we'll put an ellipsis there, and then we'll re revisit. So so summarize what we were gonna say. Yeah, I will say that the one thing I would I would let listeners know who have started to read Larwell or who maybe haven't begun is that there is an evolution to Larwell's thought, mm. and. The, uh, the the he 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 segregates different um, periods from philosophy one to his earliest writing to what he now calls philosophy five with the stuff on quantic mechanics and abstract algebra and imaginary numbers. Um, he begins with a vigorous defense of Nietzsche contra Heidegger. Hmm. And it's inspired by his, he is inspired by Deleuze and Derrida. And he even says that his initial period is uh, what he calls the Deleuze-Derrida series. <laughs> this, or sorry, the Deleuze-Derrida Oh, I thought, that was, I thought that was an intentional uh, mis mishmash of their names. No, like, it is. It is. Oh. It's based on Derrida's uh, gloss, uh, where where. Derrida plays off of the proper name, so oh, that's yeah, great. the 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 sort of the mixing of of Derrida Deruse, as he says it. <laughs> I love um, that. He he says this in textual machines. Um, he tries to combine them to a certain limit, but he realizes with philosophy too, with the the advent of actual non-philosophy um, that he, and I think he does himself a discredit and a disservice, but he claims he was 
merely pushing to the limit the kind of commentary that philosophy could do. Mm. And he was merely reversing positions. And he wants to move beyond reversibility. And he finds in the one that is not convertible with being, contra Plato, um, that... And, and, and contra Badu, this one is not quantitative. It's qualitative, as he will say. Is, is this kind of like a, a superpositionality? Mm. This is the word he will use today. In, in non-standard philosophy, what his dream, if I may like summarily kind of push it out there, is if we imagine the history of philosophy as corpuscles in the outdated scientific sense, uh, who whose positions and trans, transcendences and and, and 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 terminologies were contradictory and had to be. Um, sublated in some sort of Hegelian alphabung. As I said, as I mentioned, Hegel is like, hey, look, Schelling and Fichte, they did some great shit, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put them in the alphabung and show you how I'm better. Um, and, 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 and philosophy does this to science too, in a certain sense. Kant talking about metaphysics as the queen of the sciences, Heidegger talking about the crisis of the sciences and, and it needs an ontology to ground it. You know, Laroa wants to put a stop to that. And he wants to say that, first of all, um, superposing the, the corpuscularity, first of all, we have to look at the corpuscularity of the history of philosophy, of philosophical statements, of philosophers, of philosophies, and we have to see them as particles that are uh, enmeshed intricated quant quantically in a wave uh, particle do uh, complementarity and if we imagine philosophies and the statements etc as as waves that don't cancel each other out as physical waves might but in the quantum sense in a superposition then that would be kind of the experimental dream of non-philosophy. How mm. we get there and how we make that experiment possible is the bulk of the work of non-standard philosophy, but the dream is non-philosophy, uh, and he's called it a transcendental computer that can compute, think, you know, philosophies without contradiction, transcendentally equivalent according to the one, etc. But, mm. but if, but if, if philosophies are considered as particles that coexist and coalesce in a way without mixing, respecting their sense of identities mm. and their identities of sense in a way form that 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 doesn't physically contradict but coexists, uh, then that would be the kind of new dream of this what he calls generic science that can take philosophies as this this given this material symptom occasion for reworking into this waveform that 
opens up the possibility for a kind of unlimited experimentation mm. uh, with respect to the one. I love and, this. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely love this. I mean, I say we wrap it up here, but I will say this. Um, I would love to continue this conversation, and I'm sure if we can get Troy on, and maybe if we can get both you and Joe on too, we could have like oh, an yeah. interesting little roundtable. It'd be great because I'm thinking right now it would be really fun to explore what is not just non-philosophy's relation to science, but what uh, is science's relation to non-philosophy? Um, if it exists. <laughs> if it exists, right? Or or let's even like yes. hypothesize what could it be, right? Yes. And then yes. simultaneously, then my question is, um, because I know especially viewers or listeners of our podcast, are, um, we, we talk a lot about political philosophy. What is non-philosophy's relationship to politics? I know he, oh, has, I love a, this. he has a book on non-Marxism, right? Yes, um, he does. And then he has then, a, he has he has a couple books on the stranger. Okay. He has an essay on on speculative heresy that I've translated about minoritarians. Um, there's an essay on fractal ontology that I've translated on called Homo ex machina, which is about what he calls uh, a superior racism, which is so fraught with uh, trigger mechanisms that that like <laughs> I just want to like throw that out there. Um, it's well, about dude, why don't you do this? Why don't you shoot me shoot me an email of let's say yeah. five or seven links, and I will put I them in links. the show notes for people. Um, yeah, and uh, and then so for people who are listening, so that you can you can go and you can get some resources now to kind of follow up for this talk, but also maybe in preparation, get your minds thinking non philosophically for future discussions. Yeah, yeah, and I will. I will just say one thing, Austin. I, I maybe I should have said anything about the Homo ex machina essay. I've uh, my 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 friend Joe. He's uh, he's half Jewish, and and he uh, he got very uh, he took he took umbrage about the 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 little bits and pieces of the Homo ex machina essay. I I I sent him, and I will just say that Laurel makes clear that what he means by superior racism is it is devoid of any racial uh, nativist, imperialist, uh, supremacist uh, contents. And so it's, it's, it's super provocative, just like non-philosophy yes. is. Yeah. Um, but I want to like, just kind of make that clear that, that when he says, when I, when I mentioned superior racism, it's, uh, it's all about what Nietzsche says, uh, we need to become our own guinea pigs to ourselves in this mm. machine man future that we have. This mm. uh, so even the word racism has to be like bracketed. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I can I can send you some some links. Um, cool. I'm, I, I I'll get that to you within the next day or so. It's so interesting. I I really appreciate that, man. It, it's. This is very difficult stuff to work through. I've been often on reading blogs and secondary literature on Laruel for about nine years. So, but I haven't seriously read him at all, right? And I'm just starting. Okay. I'm just starting now. And I will say this: that that once I've gotten over the, just the mental, like maybe even resistance to yeah. non-philosophy. You mentioned something earlier, just as a kind of passing remark, about this idea of like a breath of fresh air of the outside. Mm -hmm. I do feel that. I, I like I physically, my body physically feels that 
when I'm when I'm speaking with you and when I think and when I kind of grasp some of his ideas, maybe it's eros being stimulated within me in the philosophical sense, right? That mm-hmm. I do feel that breath of fresh air. It's almost like, you know, when you put a breath mint in your mouth and you breathe it in? <laughs> or I don't know if people have ever taken Adderall before, but or like other other stimulants. Vicks, Vicks vapor rub. Yes, those congestion. too. When you when you when you when you put Vicks vapor rub in it it opens up your air pathways when you pop an Adderall. Well, I mean, I've only done it recreationally, so for me, it's it, it doesn't have like the day to day effects, but it just makes my mind like fresh. Or like when you put an Altoid in your mouth, it's yeah. like that. I feel like that's what non philosophy sometimes offers me is that I, breath I, of fresh air from the outside. I like I like that analogy, and I will say the one time I tried it in uh, undergraduate school. I recreationally, it, it actually made me sleepy. So it just it just shows people have different <laughs> people have different. I'm talking about Adderall. Uh, yeah, yeah, people Adderall. Have different, people have different physicochemical stim yeah. uh, responses. It, it, it could have been the dose. It could have been just uh, whatever. But you know, maybe it was just my own uh, addiction to caffeine. That ah uh, yes, uh, maybe. Uh, you know, it's it, it's hard to say. Uh, maybe it's my non. Uh, you know, I I had a friend that that had was, you know, diagnosed with ADHD, and so it actually helped them. And so me, and it was a time release thing. So you mm. know, it could have been just that that it was time released and not. Because um, mm. I because I because I used to. Uh, I mean, full disclosure, I used to abuse. Um, Abuse. I used to enjoy <laughs> uh, 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 cough syrup, Robitussin. Um, oh no shit! In, in, in a in a in a in a I won't. Say, well, it was a darker period in my life. I mentioned going to grad school at eighteen. Ah uh, uh, yes. And and I I had no friends. People treated me like shit. They were and, and I didn't realize until afterwards that they were intimidated because they were in their mid twenties and. You know, but I had no friends, and so on the weekends I would watch The Wall, uh, Pink Floyd, and I would do uh, Robitussin. And um, there was one time I tried a time release. Uh, it was it was like Delsum, and it didn't work. So, to you kids out there, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, right. Don't do time release. Don't do time uh, release. I, so don't do time release non philosophy either. If mm-hmm. you want to get the benefits of fresh air, just take the full 50 milligram version and just fucking yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah cool yeah. man that's... Like, well, let's go ahead and wrap it up here and i was just gonna say real quick uh just to reiterate give people um sort of a little plug where can they find you on the internet whether it's twitter sure. or wherever sure. else um your blog and stuff like that yeah sure so uh we're on we're on soundcloud we're uh it's it's i think it's soundcloud backslash or i guess forward slash i always mess that up uh, SoundClash forward slash theory hyphen talk. And then on Twitter, we're at theory underscore talk. Uh, I'm, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, uh, at, uh, at T Adkins six one three. And that's Adkins with a, with a D. Uh, and, um, well, and I know, subscribe to your podcast through, um, just Apple podcasts. So you're on okay, Apple podcasts. Well, that that too. would be better. That would be better. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's just, is it just theory talk one word? Theory talk, yeah. If you just do theory talk one word and you just search for it, it's it's easy to find. So yeah, and and we're uh, we're we also have Patreon content. We're we're putting up a new episode on Patreon about Deleuze. Um, it's one dollar a month. You know, it's it's 
it's it's meager feel free to 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 join that we have episodes on guattari simondon laruel deleuze um we're, we're trying to do more to monetize we're not trying to make tons of money we just you know it's it's nice it could pay for a lunch on a weekend exactly uh so if you guys want to go on our our patreon and you can also uh email us at uh it's uh theory talk is at gmail.com sick well sweet man um ellipses to be continued this is our own uh our own part one and uh, hopefully we can get into get into things further and then i can't wait to come on to theory talk too to talk with you and joe at some point so we will we will set that up Awesome. And we will have you on, and we're we're going to talk about your book. Which uh, great. What what's what's your perspective title for that, or has it already been published? It's out, man. It just came out this week. So the title of the book wow. is. I know, I know, I'm stoked. So it's uh it's Sartre, imagination and dialectical reason, and the subtitle is creating society as a work of art. And wow. who it, is that published by? By Roman and Littlefield International. Um, It's a part of a series called Reframing the Boundaries that are looking at philosophical figures like Kierkegaard and Axel Honneth, but from within sort of revitalized Uh, readings. You know, Honneth is a – he's he's a sporadic citation by Deleuze. Uh, Oh, really? He shows up. He he does show up in in Deleuze's citations. I I couldn't name it off the top of my head, but I know that um, that's one of the thinkers that I – uh, investigated because of Deleuze, and in fact, Deleuze is what—he's why I started translating. I, I, I wanted to translate people like Rouillet and these mm. and Simondon and Guat and even Guattari. I mean, the Machine Unconscious was my first uh, book translation, and that's why I fucking translated Guattari is because of Deleuze. So, cool. you know, but but yeah, I, I first <clears throat> found out about Axel Honneth is is because of uh uh cool yeah i mean it's it's a cool series man um they're they're doing kind of cutting edge uh cutting edge work on on figures that kind of are um that there's like a scholastic interpretation of so mine is a a fresh reading of sartre's critique of dialectical reason and um and then kind of wedding that with his earlier work on the imagination so but it's out i like that uh, yeah, man, I'll, I'll shoot you I as like soon it. as as soon as I get the full copy. I'll shoot that over to you, and uh, and yeah, and then we can chat about that as well. Yeah, I like that. I I I'm sad that I loaned out volume one of his critique of dialectical reason and and never got it back. Um, but I have <laughs> volume two. It's 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 on my bookshelf. So right on. Well, cool, dude. Well, uh, thank you so much. All right. Well, Austin, thank you for having me on and. As you said, to be continued. Well, sweet, I just wanted to send out a quick little button to the episode to uh, once again reiterate my thanks to Taylor for coming on and chatting about Laruel and to give y'all a reminder that you can reach us, owls at dawn underscore, I'm sorry, owls underscore at underscore dawn on Twitter and Insta. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com, so you can send us your suggestions for questions, uh, or, yeah, I guess your questions for the 100th episode. 
And then, of course, you can just contact us with anything uh, at any point. You can ask us things or whatever. Um, also, a quick reminder that if you go to, I guess it's Apple Podcasts now, not iTunes anymore, but if you go to Apple Podcasts or to any one of the places where you're able to ask us a question, if you leave us a five-star uh, rating and a review, but you ask us a question embedded within that review, then we'll go ahead and address it at the top of a future episode. Um, also, patreon.com slash owls at dawn gives you access to bonus content, newsletters, things like that. We've got a couple interesting bonus uh, episodes that are going to be coming up here in the near future, so stay tuned for that. Keep your ear to the street for that, and I think that's pretty much it, guys. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. We love you much. And again, Troy, we hope that this is not such a stressful endeavor for you and that you end up moving into your new location with peace and harmony. All right. Later everybody. I can't say I can't say the tale of the episode. So let's just pretend that Troy is saying what he always says. We'll insert a couple seconds of silence where he says his wonderful close to the episode. Ready? And love you guys.